50 years ago, the first commercial wine grapes were planted in Marlborough. Local journalist and wine writer Tessa Anderson has written a historical account of the Marlborough wine region from the mouths of the pioneers who planted the first vines. Her book is called 50 Years, 50 Stories. Marlborough, the region that turned the wine world upside down. And Tessa Anderson joins me now. Hi. Hi, Ed, do you see? Nice to talk to you. When did you decide yeah, nice to do this to project? Uh, it's sort of been, I've been writing about the Marlborough wine industry for 27 years, so it's sort of been in the back of my mind that it would be nice to do something when we got to a major sort of event, and the 50th seemed the perfect one to do it for. Yeah, nice one. And it's hard to imagine Marlborough without all those grapevines now, but what did it look like in the very early 1970s? Oh, to give you an indication, it was scraggly sheep country, to be honest, yeah. and a bit of forestry around the hills. But um, Wayne Thomas, who was one of the very first pioneers, he told me a story that a farmer came up to him after Montana had first started planting the grapes here. And he said to Wayne, do you think that my land over here would be any good for grapes? And Wayne said to him, well, what are you running at the moment? He said, one sheep to eight acres. And Wayne said, well, I think you could make more money on that if you planted some grapes, <laughs> which he, he did do. So that gives you a kind of idea. It, was, it wasn't very good. For, it's not overly fertile. It was very good for lucerne, very good for scraggly sheep. Yeah. But it's always been prone to drought, so it's never been sort of a lush, you know, Waikato or, um, you know, Southland-type yeah. province. What, what was that third, first word? Did you say lucerne? Lucerne, yes. I don't know which that one. Lucerne, it was pelletized um, and sent um, into Asia for um, feeding animals like cows and huh, sheep okay. over there. Yeah. Um, so who was the first to put down vineyards or put down vines? Well, the first was Montana, Frank Jukic, and, um, and he, he already had vineyards in Auckland, Gisborne and Hawke's Bay, but he was looking to expand the company because he just he wanted to make New Zealand um, a tour de force on the wine in the wine world. And he um, he'd he looked at Gisborne and Hawke's Bay to expand, but the land was just really expensive and and it was probably too fertile. It was good cropping land, but not that good for grapes. So the person that he took with him, Wayne Thomas, said. I don't think you're looking at the right land. Why don't we look at somewhere like Marlborough? Mm. And Frank said, really? Why would I look there? It's in the South Island. And um, you can't grow grapes in the South Island. And <laughs> Wayne said, oh, why don't we just have a look at it? You know, it's got really high sunshine, very low summer rainfall, medium to you know fertile soils. I think it could be perfect. And so he and Frank came down to Marlborough in 1973. They rang a, a real estate company, which happened to be Pine Gold Guinness, and the agent was John Maris, and they asked him if he could find them around 500 acres of land. That, and John had no idea who they were, were or what they wanted it for because Wayne and Frank came up with this unbelievable name called Cloudy Bay Incorporated yeah. so that no one would know that it was Montana. No one, Wayne can't remember why they came up with that name, but they did. And I think it's so ironic that Cloudy Bay then went on to become sort of our greatest um, sort of wine company, you know, internationally. Um, so they came down, they had a look round, and they bought up a whole heap of land. In fact, they had only wanted about four, you know, four thousand acres, and they ended up with seven thousand. And 
back and much, much cheaper than it would have been if they'd gone in and bought in Hawke's Bay or Gisborne. And so that was the start of it. They bought up all these farms, nine properties, had to pay a 10% deposit non-refundable, which they hadn't come down with the board knowing what they were coming down to do, Board of Montana. So Frank went to the bank and mortgaged his house, remortgaged his house and got the money to pay out the 10% deposit um, and then went back to Auckland and presented fait accompli that he'd bought this land down in Marlborough and needed to get a refund for the deposit and to pay the rest off. And the board said, no way, no, we're not doing it. We don't believe that's a very good idea. And so poor old Wayne was out of pocket for the money that he and is about to lose his house and everything. Um, and at that stage, Wayne Thomas was actually over in America and at university over there. And Frank rang him and said, hey, I'm in trouble here. Can you show your information to any of the viticultural Enology professors over there and see what they say. So Wayne Thomas showed his report to these three top um, enology professors and they all signed it off saying that Marlborough would, had huge potential as a great growing region. He faxed that back to Frank who presented it to the board and the board said, okay, we'll go with you then. And so that was the start of it. And then on August the 23rd, 24th, sorry, 1973, there was an official planting of the very first grape up at Brancott Estate, which is where the Marlborough Wine and Food Festival has been held up until this year. Yeah. And that was one vine planted, silver coin planted, you know, placed underneath it for good luck and um, sparkling wine poured over it to help it grow. And Wayne invited everybody from New Zealand wine growers and all the other wineries up from around Henderson to it and a lot of friends and officials and he said at the time, wines from here will become world famous. God knows why he thought that would happen. <laughs> but he was so correct. That was, But at the time, they didn't actually plant Sauvignon Blanc back then, not in 1973. That didn't happen until 1975. So we didn't start off with our most famous variety. Right. And, and when was the moment for Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc? Uh, well, that went in in 1975, and talking to some of the people who were around at that time when it was first um, harvested, they couldn't believe that they'd ever be able to do anything with it because the smell was so pungent. It was like nothing else that they'd ever grown in Marlborough, which was mainly Muller Turgau, yeah. a bit of Chen and Blanc. Um, and it was really not until Ernie Hunter went over to London with his wines in 1985 um, that that really, and that was a Fumé Blanc, that was an Oak Age Sauvignon Blanc, that, and he won over the French and gained international sort of kudos for it that um, anybody else sort of looked at Sauvignon Blanc in the region. Uh, yeah, it's had some pretty famous moments over the years. It had some pretty yes, big-name yeah. wine writers sing its praises, hey? Oh, yes. I mean, there are, there are so many people that just have raved about about the wine over the years, um, but I think probably one of our greatest um, champions has been Oz Clark from from England. He's a renowned wine writer. And last year he did an interview on um, on Instagram and it was with um, a person from the Wine Society, it was their head buyer, who said to Oz, okay, so what wine would you take to a desert island and why? And he said, Dog Point Sauvignon Blanc from Marlborough. Although technically I could have chosen any one of a hundred wines from Marlborough, 
But the whole point of Malvern Sauvignon Blanc is it's a wine that changed the world of wine and certainly changed my world of wine. Huh. And he goes on to, we've actually got his, his um, transcript in the book, he goes on to explain why it changed it. And, and that was kind of like the beginning of people like that started to write about New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc and Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah. A couple of other significant moments. Uh, we're talking 50 years of Marlborough wine. Um, the Wineworks Yacht Race, that's quite a fun one. Oh, yes. So I think most a lot of people know that Beaujolais do um, do a sort of a race to get the first Beaujolais from France over into England. And the Wine Marlborough, the corporate body here that looks after the growers and the wineries, um, thought it might be a good thing to try and capture something like that here in, in New Zealand and, and take the first releases of Sauvignon Blanc to Wellington, to the capital. But there's a, a big stretch of water between Marlborough and Wellington, so the only way really to get them over there was to put them on boats. So working in with the Waikawa Boat Club, um, we, they got about 30 yachts every year, and each yacht was teamed up with a winery, and they had to carry that winery's bottle in a wooden box over to Wellington and deliver it. And so there was always a race on to see whose was going to be the first wine to get there and who was going to be the first yacht to get there. It was, it was a good, fun way of promoting the release of that year's vintage. And another moment worth mentioning, the move from cork to screw caps. That would have sounded, well, that would have been unthinkable for a, for a while, but um, everyone seems to have got used to the idea. It's regarded now as a generally positive move. Oh, totally. But at the beginning, there was all this talk about the consumer will hate it. They won't want to unscrew a cap. They'll want that romanticism of pulling a cork out of a bottle. There was a lot of that. But no, it actually, you know, just you'd you'd find it difficult now to get a bottle of wine with a cork in it. And the science has proven that wines that are under screw caps stay so much fresher and so much truer to what they were originally bottled as than they do under cork. How is oh, no, the health it... how is the health of the Marlborough wine region and, and will we still be talking about it as a major wine region of New Zealand in fifty years from now? Oh, I should imagine so it's very hard to to prevent the juggernaut that is Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. I mean, it is one of the most or it's one of the only regions in the world that is actually associated with one variety. And I think as Oz Clark talks, it is a people's wine. You don't have to be an intellectual to understand it. You just like it. And I think that that's never going to change. And I do think, too, that there's so many other varieties that are produced here in Marlborough that have not really hit their straps or hit the consumer um, mind yet. And I'm talking sparkling wines, um, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, any of the aromatics, um, things like Riesling, Gewürztraminer, all of those, they're all growing here in Melbourne. They're all growing exceptionally well and producing very fine wines. Congratulations on the book. Where can people get it? Um, right, so it should be in most bookstores in the next few weeks or, there, or you can go online and it's ratapublications.com Nice work. 50 years, 50 stories. Marlborough, the region that turned the wine world upside down and I've been speaking to journalist and wine writer Tessa Anderson. Thanks Tessa. Thank you Jesse.